Hello, everyone. This is Jerry Reese. I'm a writer, director, animator, sometimes sculptor and voice actor who is talking to you from the Skull Rock podcast. Have fun. Skull Rock podcast, talking all things Disney with your hosts, Eljan Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome to another edition of Skull Rock podcast. If it's your first time checking us out, thank you and welcome. Every week, Dave and I talk all things Disney and pop culture with never-before-heard stories, behind-the-scenes moments from some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, and much, much more. I'm one of your co-hosts, Al John Go, musician, longtime Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, pop culturist, love the theme parks, and you can contact me, email aljon, A-L-J-O-N, at skullrockpodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard, artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And we're also on the Sorcerer Radio Network. Uh, you can like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And you can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Al John, how are you today? I'm good. And I wanted to ask you, Dave, when are you going to be going into space? Because I always wanted to say this, Dave in space. There you go. <laughs> uh, you know something? I, I would jump at the chance once the prices come down to earth. Uh, but uh, I would do it in a heartbeat. It, it, you know, hey, listen, if Jeff Bezos uh, gave me the gift of a free trip, I would do it in a, in a second. Uh, and, and I have to say, they they you know, he did that for William Shatner. And I have to tell you that is the most brilliant marketing uh, uh, stunt I've ever seen. It yeah. was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And everybody, the international and national news organizations were all there in West Texas to see William Captain Kirk Shatner blast off on the blue origin, new shepherd rocket. Yeah, well, we're going to get in depth and talk about the Shatton space. But uh, what we want to do is uh, also talk about the gentleman that's waiting for us in the green room. So uh, who's waiting for Absol us? Absolutely. Uh, you know something? We've got Fred Klein, who is a storyboard artist, art director, production designer, director, all around great guy, great artist. Uh, he's in the green room now, and I'm looking forward to bringing him in and for us to talk with him because he's got some great stories uh, to tell, especially about how he got into animation and the fact that he uh, serendipitously uh, met uh, Lee and Mary Blair. So we're looking yeah. forward to that. Wow. Yeah, that's going to be a great story. So can't wait. But in the meantime, we've got some pop, 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 pop culture. Skull Rock Podcast. This week in Disney and pop culture. Well, anytime I, I get a chance to uh, talk about Star Trek, I relish it. Dave, did you know I'm a huge Star Trek fan? 
I did know that. Yeah. And uh, I am too. Oh, nice. uh, you know, nice. I think I've seen probably of the original series starring William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy and, and the rest of the crew of the Starship Enterprise. Yes. Uh, I think I probably have seen every one of those episodes at least a half a dozen times or more. Yeah, 100%. I, it, there's nothing... Um, more pop culture, I guess, uh, than, you know, some of these other franchises, I'm sure. But I mean, that's, uh, you know, between James Bond and Star Trek, I mean, that that's lasted a long time since the 60s. And yeah. so when you see the headlines this week, and you alluded to it earlier, William Shatner being shot into space on the Blue Origin aircraft, uh, spacecraft there with Jeff Bezos, uh, it just was just a marketing um, coup. It was awesome. I thought it was amazing. I mean, uh, my wife, Kristen looked at the footage and was like, Captain Kirk is 90 years old. And I said, yeah. I was like, doesn't he look he good look, for 90? Like he looks great. He looks, he looks fantastic. fantastic. Absolutely. He really does look fantastic. And, and, you know, I, I, I have to say, you know, when you, th when you talk about Star Trek, uh, and that original series from the 1960s, I mean, what a visionary Gene Roddenberry was the creator of Star Trek. Oh, for I sure. mean, an incredible visionary because just about every device that, that you see in Star Trek in that television series has come to fruition, <laughs> right? The communicators are the, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, iPhones yeah. and the, and the uh, Android phones. Uh, you know, we have tablet computers. Yep. We have uh, handheld scanners. Yep. We have uh, now, you know, when they said computer, tell me X, Y, and Z. Well, we, we have that now. <laughs> we with have these, Alexa. <laughs> uh, yeah, with, with these Amazon and Google and yeah. Apple devices. Uh -huh. I mean, you know, all of this stuff. And, and then... When you talk about the replicator, well, we've got 3D printing as well. This so I, I just sit there and, and look at that Star Trek series and say, my gosh, what a window into the future that was. Well, you know, the great thing about that is that much like Walt Disney, you know, Gene was a futurist, you know, mm -hmm. and they lived in that era of the space race and what possibilities, you know, I think about the Monsanto dream house and the future house of the future. And I think all those other things that have happened, you know, the Jetsons, we'd all be flying in spacecrafts going to work here by 2015 or whatever the case was, you know, even though we, we fell short of that, it is really cool that they're commercializing space flight, is, if you will, zero gravity with blue origin in there, people floating around in there. And of course, Captain Kirk, uh, you know, fulfilling his destiny is, as it were, with William Shatner in space. And um, what a, that was just a gas. I love I just love watching that whole thing unfold. And so congratulations to Jeff Bezos. Congratulations, Blue Origin crew and Captain Kirk himself. I love William Shatner. And uh, just an amazing view from where he was. It was amazing. And, and, you know, it really had to have been something because, you know, to see him describing it afterwards when he was back down on the ground, um, I mean, you know, he was so emotional about it, you know, and I just think, wow, it, it, it's like, I can't wait to do it. Yeah. He says, quote, what you've built, everyone in the world needs to do this. Chetner tells Bezos, everybody in the world needs to see as he trails off and gets choked up. The covering of the blue, the sheet, the blanket, the comforter of blue that we have around us, we think, oh, that's blue sky. Then suddenly you shoot through as if all of a sudden you were whipped into a sheet uh, off you when you're asleep and you're looking into the blackness, into the black ugliness, and you look down and there's the blue down there. And it's 
black up there, just there below is mother earth comforting, you know? And, uh, what is this? Is there death? I don't know. Uh, is that how death is? Whoop. And it's gone. Jesus, <laughs> you know, just <laughs> William Shatner and just all his words. And I'm trying to do the dramatic pauses. Like what is up there? And is there death? Spock, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're waiting for him to do that. But, um, but at any rate, you know, this is really one small step for man once again, and uh, one giant leap for captain Kirk. So, and speaking of giant leaps, Dave, Alan Horn from Disney Studios set to retire at the end of the year. And uh, I remember you sending me this tidbit bit. And I, I said to you, I said in the chat, I said, it's an end of an era. It, you know, it really is the end of an era. Uh, I think, you know, Alan Horn did a terrific job uh, when he took over. Uh, and, and, you know, Dick Cook, uh, you know, he took over uh, uh, from where Dick Cook had left off and, you know, Dick had done a great job steering the Disney studios. Um, Alan is retiring and, you know, he really is one of the most respected uh, executives, uh, film executives in, in, in Hollywood. And uh, uh, he had a fantastic run at Disney, broke a lot of records uh, while he was on top of the studio. Uh, I mean, just in, in box office, you know, annual box office for a studio and things like that really did a great job steering uh, the Disney film studios all these years uh, with Iger uh, at the helm. And, you know, this is the natural changing of the guard. Have you ever met Alan? Yeah, I have. And he's a very nice man. Oh, that's great. Uh, very, very, very um, uh, nice individual. Um, I spoke with him uh, on a couple of occasions and, uh, you know, wish him well uh, in retirement. And I hope he actually just is is not really retiring, but turning the page and is going to go off and do some other, you know, cool things. Amazing. That caps a 50 year plus career of course, as you said, one of the most revered executives in Hollywood and is kind of leaving with Bob, you know, Bob Iger. So the two of them, you know, uh, exiting the company and Alan Bergman uh, succeeded Horn as sole chairman. So uh, there you have it. It's going to be taken over. Very, yeah, a very, very smooth transition. And, and, you know, Alan Bergman is a great guy. Uh, He's been there. He was there under Cook. Uh, He was there under uh, Alan Horn. And now he's uh, taken the reins. And uh, it couldn't have been a more smooth, smoother transition as far as I'm concerned. Alan's terrific. Alan Bergman and Alan Horn. Both terrific guys. Yeah, exactly. That's great. You had two bobs and he had two allen so there you go there you uh, go right so how about this netflix to operate historic palisades movie theater and the deal expands streamers ability to screen movies on the big screen during award season as well as helping struggling cinemas stay open um this is uh interesting that they would get into the the movie brick and mortar business is it not No, not really, because, you know, many of the other uh, studios uh, have, you know, standalone theaters, you know, Uh, Netflix. This is not Netflix's first attempt either or first opportunity to take an old theater. Uh, They also I think they've got the Egyptian down in Hollywood uh, and uh, another 
Theater, uh, uh, the Paris Theater uh, in New York City, yeah. uh, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, and, um, and and so I love seeing uh, uh, this, you know, the various studios uh, buy up, uh, you know, a historic theater and and renovate it, and of course show their movies. I mean, just look, Disney Studios has the El Capitan on right. Hollywood Boulevard, which right. they did an awesome job restoring that theater, and not, I mean that's an old movie pal. Plus the organ in there. Yeah. What's that? Plus they have that organ in there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, out in Los Angeles, there there is a there is a uh, organization that is working to preserve some of these movie palaces. Uh, and, you know, every major city has these beautiful uh, Art Deco, you know, uh, movie palaces that date back to the late 20s and into the 30s. And I think anytime there's a chance to go in and do a, a restoration and revive those kinds of venues is is a huge plus. Absolutely. Well, it looks super cool and uh, be on the lookout for it as they are uh, developing the theater right now. So I'm sure we'll keep you posted on that right there in the yeah. uh, Bay theater. Very cool. Yeah. Out in uh, it's Pacific Palisades area of okay. Los Angeles, you right know, on. so it's really, it's going to be a, a venue for people that, you know, on the West side of Los Angeles, you know, Santa Monica, Pacific Palisades, Malibu, you know, Looks pretty cool to me, for sure. And then we have a Disney legend passing. The amazing Ruthie Thompson passes away yeah. at the age 111. Her first feature was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. She was one of the first women to be admitted into the Hollywood Camera Union. Dave, what a storied life. Yeah, you know, she was really an amazing lady. Um, I knew her. Uh, I didn't work with her because she had retired from Disney while I was in high school. You know, oh, right? And yeah, and, and and by the way, yes, she did work in the ink and paint department on Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. But it goes back even earlier with the Disney Brothers because she was an extra in some of the Alice comedies. Uh, oh, in the er, in in yeah. the early nineteen you know the mid nineteen twenties. So yeah, so and she was really something else. I um, you know I I met her many years ago and and talked with her on a number of occasions. I was at her hundred and first birthday party, uh, obviously ten years ago, hmm. uh, and she uh, and it was it was hundred one Dalmatians themed. Uh, that birthday party. And she was wow. uh, just incredible. And then uh, I think when she was 105, I uh, did an on-camera interview with her, uh, filmed an interview uh, talking about uh, her work with the multiplane camera and documenting some of that. Um, you know, I have to tell you how, John, you know, it's always sad when somebody passes from this world but she was 111 years old mm -hmm. and she had really a magnificent life. She was witness to most of the 20th century and some of the greatest advances in mankind. 
you know, in humankind. Yes. I, I mean, really unbelievable. Can you imagine? She was born in 1910. She was born before the Titanic sank. Yeah. She survived the Spanish flu epidemic. Uh, she uh, witnessed World War One, Prohibition, the Great Depression, yeah. the introduction of radio, the, the proliferation of motion picture, and the introduction of sound to motion picture. Um, you know, the um, uh, World War II, the nuclear age, the invention of computers, the invention of cell phones, the, you know, man stepping on uh, on the moon. I mean, it just goes on and on and on all of the things that she witnessed. Uh, and it's just absolutely astounding what her life was. And she was the loveliest person. I have to tell you, Al John, when I was interviewing her when she was 105, I asked her about her age. I said, you know, Ruthie, you know, what do you think about, you know, living to be 105? And she said to me, she said, Dave, she goes, why leave the party when you're having so much fun? Oh, wow. That was that was her attitude. That's awesome. You know? Yeah. I mean, it was really great. And then while we were doing the interview, she says, do you think I'll be able to get, she, she lived out at the motion picture um, uh, retirement home in Woodland Hills, California. And she asked me um, uh, before we, we, we started rolling cameras. Uh, she said, do you think I'll be able to get back to uh, the home by uh, one o'clock? And I said, absolutely. I said, what's going on? She goes, well, I have my weekly poker game. And uh, <laughs> she used to play poker with a group of people at the retirement home. And uh, and one of the other cameramen that I had on the set uh, said uh, he, he quipped that she cleans people out every week. You know, she was a mean, mean poker player. So, you know, awesome. I, I mean, what what an amazing life and an accomplished woman she was. I mean, you know, being one of the first people to one of one of the first women to be uh, admitted into the cameraman's union. Uh, yeah. You know, she just was a groundbreaking individual. That's awesome. Well, she will be missed. What a great, great uh, storied career. Uh, she passed away Sunday. And once again, at the Motion Picture and Television Fund's County House, as you mentioned, in Woodland Hills. Yeah. Uh, she was a survivor of the scene planning department at Disney. Uh, she helped to establish the camera mechanics used for the animated scenes and background art in the film. I'm sure she did a lot with a multiplane camera. I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the expertise earned her a pioneering invitation to join the International Photographers Union in 1952. Mm. And uh, wow, just a lot a lot of stuff there so please check it out um and uh and i guess maybe uh if you're a patreon for dave you could check out the interview you did with ruthie that would be amazing yeah yeah i i, I put some of that up uh on my patreon page and and you know i have to tell you uh you know she she was just the loveliest person had the greatest disposition uh and you know talk about having a great outlook on life uh, you know, she, she just was a wonderful person and I say Godspeed to her, um, we'll miss her, but boy, uh, we will remember her and the career she had. Skull Rock Podcast, interview time. 
Well, Al, John, once again, we have a fantastic guest, a gentleman named Fred Klein, who is uh, everything under the sun from a layout artist to an art director, production designer, uh, storyboard artist, and now director. He's doing a lot of direction. Uh, He's worked on films like The Little Mermaid, Space Jam, and Jimmy Neutron, Boy Genius, and uh, on a ton of television shows, really great stuff, Robot Chicken, uh, Randy Cunningham, Ninth Grade Ninja, Miles from Tomorrowland, Puppy Dog Pals, and so much more. I want to welcome my old friend, Fred Klein, to the Skull Rock Podcast. Fred, how you doing? Very good. Pleasure to be here with you, Kate. The There's our studio wild. audience going wild for you, Fred. <laughs> Fred, it is so great to see you. It's been it's been quite a number of years, and and I'm glad we're having a chance to catch up here uh, on the Skull Rock Podcast. Um, Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I wanted to sort of step back in time a little bit because you got your training at Cal Arts, and did you did you can you talk a little bit about that? And did you kind of know the direction you wanted to go in uh, uh, when you were at Cal Arts? Yeah, I got the animation bug when I was in eighth grade. I think that's as early as I can remember wanting to. I wanted to make a Mickey Mouse cartoon all by myself until I. I discovered how hard it was. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think I, I uh, did one of those draw me things like in the back of a TV guide or something for this correspondence art course called Art Instruction Schools. Oh, yeah. That was my very first art training is taking that correspondence course. How, how was that course? I remember seeing, you know, like draw Bambi and you could become an artist or something like that. I mean, they had that all kinds of different things, didn't they? Yeah, it was actually a really nice course. They had a loose leaf, uh, like a two volume set of lessons that you'd gradually accumulate. I think you'd get a new lesson every week. Then you do your work and you'd send it in. And one of their real live uh, instructors who was also a practicing um commercial artists, probably like an illustrator back east, they were in Minneapolis. Um, your lesson would be uh, corrected by them and sent back through the mail. And wow. you just accumulate your lessons in these binders. Hey, wait and, a minute, Fred. So is this the same course that you would see them advertising on TV where you can draw turtles and different you know. Exactly. Okay, so this I did like the silly little cartoony drawing. Yes. So I did the same thing too. And um, that's hilarious that, 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 of course, my path, my career path was different, but that's awesome that we did the same, the same courses. That's amazing. I think my, the advertisement that I responded to was in the TV guide. So my, my entrance exam to art school was in the TV guide. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. I wonder whatever happened to that company. I think it folded in 2018. There was another, another correspondence called Famous Artist Schools, and they folded around 2016 there. So there was something about that era where they couldn't make a go of it anymore. Or, or they, couldn't, they couldn't transition into the YouTube digital world. Yeah, that was probably it. Wow, that, that's really amazing. How did you find out about CalArts? CalArts through actually Lee Blair. Um, uh, they had retired to, Lee and Mary Blair had retired to SoCal, California, which is just like 10 miles down the road from Santa Cruz, where I grew up. And um, I saw an uh, article in the newspaper one day that was called 
They Animate Fantasia. That was the, the headline of the article. And it was about Lee and Mary Blair. And uh, so I thought, well, I got to meet them. I want to do animation. So I looked in the phone book and there was their names. <laughs> so I called them up and they said, yeah, let's meet. And so we had lunch at a restaurant called The Catalyst. It was a really famous uh, rock and roll venue in uh, by night, it was a rock and roll venue in Santa Cruz where you feel like, like the Doobie Brothers and Jefferson Airplane would play there sometime. And, uh, but they served lunch during the day, and I guess they served food at night. But um, that's where we met. That's where I first met Lee and Mary Blair. Then I found out later that they were patients of my father, who was a podiatrist in Santa Cruz. So wow. my father was their podiatrist. Wow. wow. Your father took care of the Blair's feet. That's what, that is amazing. What were they like? I, I'm just really curious. What, the I, feet? I, I, Dave, you're asking you about the feet? <laughs> no, no, not about the feet. Not, I don't want to know about their feet. I'm just curious. What what was, because uh, Lee, Lee went, Lee, he left Disney and went into advertising on the East right. Coast. He and Preston yeah. were co-owners of a really well-known advertising um, company that did animation for advertising. And it was called, uh, it, it started out as film graphics and then they changed it to TV graphics. Wow. That's amazing. I, and you know, Preston Blair put out the, uh, uh, how to draw cartoons book. Uh, what was it like a Foster's, uh, yeah, publication, Foster the, the Walter Foster book. Yeah. I, I think, I think everybody, I, everybody I know in the animation industry probably has that book. I, I I've heard so many people say, Oh my gosh, that was like the first animation book I ever got. Well, the material in that book was so valuable, so clearly presented and so simply presented that it was a really good book to learn. Yeah. Yeah. I think I still have my copy. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so what was, what was uh, Lee and Mary like at that point? Because they were retired, I would think, right? Retired. Uh, Lee kept busy. I think he was teaching animation both at uh, Cabrillo College, which was the local two-year junior college and at UCSC, which was uh, University of California, Santa Cruz, he would teach. And he had a big Oxbury camera that he hauled back from New York from his closed studio. And he donated that to Un uh, University of California, Santa Cruz. And so he taught people how to use it. Wow. That's, ama that's amazing. You know, he, he was, uh, he was a member of the California watercolor society back in the thirties. Oh, yeah. And, and, and actually he was actually friends with, uh, Claude Coates. Uh, yeah, they went, they went to, yeah, they went to school together. Um, and, uh, which is pretty amazing. It's a small world. Yeah. And Lee was actually in the dolphin fellowship with, which is the elite branch of American watercolor society. Oh, really? So yeah, he was very accomplished and his works go for, uh, many thousands of dollars in the, uh, in the art world, in the auction world today. What, what was Mary like? Mary, uh, by, that, by the time I met her, I met her about a couple of years before she died, and she was uh, um, inactive. She wasn't doing any work at the time that I met her. Um, their house was filled with her work, um, and she liked to talk about all the kinds of things that she did, um, but uh, she, was, she was very retired at that point. And what's strange is when I first met her, she was 64, but you would take her to be an 80-year-old or an 85-year-old woman. Is that right? She, wow. she, 
Yes. I think a lot, alcohol had a lot to do with that. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So she wasn't even doing any personal artwork for herself. She may have been the, the, the latest, the latest work that I saw all around the house. It was, it was not as beautiful and well-designed and well-colored as her original like mid-career work. Um, it was really brutish uh, as far as the colors were garish and you know, clashing. And uh, Really? Yeah. I, I, you can see some of her stuff in print. Yeah. Yeah. The stuff that she did just before, you know, she, she stopped working altogether was uh, very crude looking and not as attractive as her earlier stuff. Not, not as appealing as some of the stuff she did for, for Alice in Wonderland or, or Cinderella or Peter Pan. I would say that it was every bit as imaginative and every bit as whimsical. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And was it, was that just the one time you met them or did you oh, become no, friends with them? I the house like on Sundays and I would work on my projects. I did little, uh, um, well, today we'd call them animatics, but Lee called them like a reels. Oh yeah. Right. Okay. Like a reels. So I would do, uh, I would do like to pick a piece of music and then I would do some, some, uh, images to go along with that. And Lee would help me photograph it and put it together. Stuff like wow, that. man. How old were you when this was going on? Teenager, mid, mid teens, like 15, 16. Wow. How lucky were you, huh? Yeah. And then, uh, I went away to boarding school and Lee would continue to write me letters. Wow. That's, that's so so awesome. Father's funeral. He came to my wedding. Um, I went to Mary's funeral. So we had a relationship. Wow. Wow. That is something else. Amazing. I had no idea, Fred. You're, you are, you're, you're, you're a cauldron of secrets here. You know? (laughs) (laughs) When Canemaker, John Canemaker was doing his, his books, I think he did a book called Before the Animation Begins. Yeah. And uh, he did quite a bit on Mary in that book. And I, he had asked me to write him a letter and uh, describe what it was like for Mary Blair in those last few years of her life. And so mm. I wrote that letter and he used uh, excerpts and quotes from that. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. I just, I just traded emails with John Canemaker. Uh, I, I consider him a friend. Yeah. He's a terrific guy and I love his artwork. And as an artist too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so from, from uh, being tutored by uh, Lee and Mary Blair, uh, how'd you, how'd you find out about CalArts? From Lee, because he Uh said Chouinard had become CalArts. So he said, it's like, if you want, if you want to do character animation, that's the place to go. So that's, I had my eyes on CalArts from that, uh, from the time I was a teenager. And, and did you go there right out of high school? I didn't. I went to a two-year, uh, I went two years at a four-year liberal arts college and got an associate degree in like an, uh, advertising design. It was like, come yeah. on, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did that just two years and then I went to CalArts. You were on the track I was on. I was going to, to a uh, two-year a, uh, advertising art program. Okay. Yeah, before I went to CalArts. Right. You know, but I found out about CalArts through a New York Times article. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I thought, I'm glad I did it that way because there was a lot of uh, general courses that you wouldn't get at CalArts. Yeah. 
this other four-year institution. And, and, and also, I think I, I don't think uh, going right out of uh, high school into Cal Arts at that time was was a good strategy for for young impressionable people. I worked for certain people. Dan Jupe did it. Steve Moore did it. Um, yeah, I, I, I maybe maybe the animation the animation program I think it was tamer than the rest of the institute back in those days. For me, I thought I really appreciated having that two years at a general liberal arts college. Yeah, yeah, same here. That's pretty amazing. And, and so, when you were at Cal Arts, did you feel like um, you you knew the direction you wanted to go into? I mean, I'm imagining uh, working with Lee and Mary Blair for a couple of years while you're in high school probably helped point you in a direction as far as what I you think, wanted to uh, do. Both of them were fine artists. Lee did have his watercolors, and Mary, even though she always worked on commercial projects, it was always like distinctly her own vision. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I thought art direction was a, a real natural thing for me to go into. So that's that's kind of what I first went into through layout. Yeah, layout stepping into art direction. Did, was Lee doing? Uh, was was Lee still doing his uh, watercolors? His own work? His yeah, own personal? He, he did watercolors all throughout his life. Yeah. Wow. That that's dedication, isn't it? Right. In fact, in 1932, when I think he was still like in his early 20s, he won a gold medal at the 1932 Olympics. Uh, they had an arts festival that went along with the Olympics and they gave yeah. out gold, silver and bronze medals to the art. Wow. He had a watercolor that he did um, of a rode rodeo scene, a rodeo scene. <laughs> a, a rodeo scene, yeah. Rodeo, yeah. Rodeo is Rodeo Drive. <laughs> yeah. A, a, a scene of women shopping on Rodeo Drive. No, it's a, it was a rodeo with cowboys. That's yeah. right. And so that won a gold medal, and he was very young at that. that that's that's pretty impressive, I think. Yeah. But when, when you were at CalArts, did, did you have a sense of wanting to go into production design, layout, direct, you know, that kind of thing, art so. direction? Yeah. 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 Because you I did. enjoyed animation, but there were other people right along with me that, that were steps ahead of me in that direction. <laughs> so I, you know, I kind of gravitated toward the production design and it's uh, probably because I was so familiar with Lee and Mary's career. That was the inspiration yeah. That formed me early. Yeah. And what, what was your first uh, job out of Cal Arts? My very first job out of Cal Arts, I think it was, it was either a, a summer at DIC, which was working on a, a show called Wolf Rock TV, which was some kids that ran a music video station and it was animated story segments. And then they would go to a music video and it was like live action Madonna singing <laughs> celebration or whatever. <laughs> so weird show. And it only got aired, I think the first three episodes and then they canceled. It. Okay. Yeah. Well, you have to talk about who was a star of Wolf Rock TV. That was Wolfman Jack. That's right, baby. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I'm the only other one that probably I, I love uh, that show was great because I, I have a radio background and Wolfman Jack was the stuff, yo. Uh, so, so you remember actually seeing that show? Aired I, on uh, yeah, yeah. I seem to remember that. And I know I saw some stuff on YouTube about it. And I was like, wait, you mean you were involved in that? That's, that's cool. <laughs> I also worked on an educational short film through a company called, I think, David Stipes. 
which was a, in a, a live action visual effects studio, but he had a pet project um, based on like education about dreams and what they mean or something like that. <laughs> That's Thanks. people like uh, June Foray and Hal, Hal Smith to do voices. Uh-huh. So he got some pretty good voice talent and it was just this little educational short. So you, you were, you were bouncing around with a couple of smaller studios before you got yeah. to Disney, right? Right. Yeah. And, and well, you, what was your first project at Disney? Was it Little Mermaid? Did you get hired on? Oh, for that? that was, uh, I was hoping to get on to, uh, Basil of Baker street, which was great mouse detective. Yeah. 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 But uh, I, I did uh, some sample artwork for John and Ron, and they really liked it, but they didn't want to hire me. But uh, Rob Minkoff had taken me in to meet them. And then uh, while we were walking out, we met Daryl Van Sitters in the hallway, and he yeah. saw my artwork, and he offered me a job on sport goofy oh yeah yeah the sport goofy project that that's a tale to tell unit which was off the lot but it was disney yeah oh that's cool though because i the sport goofy uh animations were killer like i thought they were a lot of fun (laughs) are you are you talking about the original ones back in uh in the 40s the uh no, you're talking about you're talking about the the next uh, the next iteration of that, right? I mean the f- the 40s were yeah, fun. Kind of based on those how goofy how to the how to yeah, right yeah yeah it was sort of the 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 how to play baseball how to do this so it, yeah it was it was a takeoff on that but it was more of a featurette, wasn't it? Uh, also, Fred? it was it came from the marketing department. They had an idea to make uh, Goofy as clumsy as he was in his normal life. For some reason, he was really good at sports. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that was their character that they invented called Sport Goofy. And we, so they decided to make this 22-minute, uh, half-hour uh, short called Sport Goofy Soccer Mania. So. Nice. And that, that was the one they brought Ward Kimball in to show, didn't That's they? That's right. They didn't, uh, the studio didn't really like the first version of that, so they re- retooled it with a, a, a different crew um, at the main studio. Um, and I, I think Steve Hickner kind of uh, headed the production on that. Or yeah, yeah. And that's when Ward Kimball stepped in and gave notes. And yeah, which I, I, from what I understand, were hilarious notes. You know? They did improve it, and they they finished it, and they aired it. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And then from 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 Sport Goofy, did you go on to? Uh, you, you didn't get on to Great Mouse Detective. But I did. Got- the tail end of Great Mouse Detective, I was on it doing layout or, yeah, I was doing layout. How did you like doing layout? I enjoyed it. It was like, a, you know, when you do layout, you do a drawing that shows what the characters are supposed to be doing in the shot, uh, just like one or two poses. And then you uh, do a drawing that showed what the effects were supposed to be in the shot. And you do a drawing that had what the field markings were whether you truck in truck out do a camera pan or whatever yeah so you were actually like a junior art director so that was a natural segue into art. you you were essentially planning out the the scene but you were also drawing you you were doing the drawing of the environment the background background of course yeah we we, and that would that drawing would go to the background artists who would then transfer that to illustration board and create a painting That's back right. in, back in those days. Right. Now, now it's, it's all done digitally, right. but, but these guys were doing what you know, were using uh, real paint. Right. So none of my artwork would ever show up on the screen, but it touched 
a lot of different aspects of production. Yeah, yeah. Hey, can you just explain to the audience what 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 uh, the layout uh, person you you just step through some of what layout does, but what's the difference between uh, a layout artist and a production designer? Well, the production designer makes the decisions on what uh, what the film language is going to be. What what are colors going to mean? Uh, what's the color palette going to be? And when the, the when the emotions change, or when the the uh, when you have the climax, how are those colors going to change? And what are they kind of? They're going to come from from what in the first part of the film to to what kind of palette in the climax? And right. at the resolution of the story, how are the colors going to change then? Yeah, but you're you're also setting the design, the the style of uh, of what the what the project's going to look like too, right? Visual language, you're you're keeping track of uh, uh, color, texture, line, shape, uh, values, light and dark. Um, what all of these things are going to do for each moment of the narrative. So right. the first thing you do as a production designer is you go through the script and you break it down into the emotional beats and then you attract the emotional beats with whatever language you're going to use as far as what's texture going to do is this going to be uh, very gritty or very slick and smooth um and how's that going to uh how's that going to support what the character what the main character is doing at this point or what the thematic uh ideas that are that the the writers are trying to get across how is how are the visuals supporting this narrative? Right, because all all of those all, all those aspects are pieces to the puzzle, uh, and they ultimately are, are supporting the story and right. uh, and, and the, the main characters, the, the characters that are on screen, obviously. And, and there's always there's always those moments when when the production design or an environment take center stage and establishing shot or whatever the same with effects. I mean, there's always that a sequence where it's effects heavy and the effects kind of take center stage, but, but most of the time, all of those elements are really supporting uh, the story. They're supporting characters essentially. And uh, a musician is doing the exact same thing when he's scoring the movie, he's breaking down the movie into the emotional beats and he wants to make sure he, crafts, music, uh, the chords, the melodies, uh, everything is going to be supporting that emotional beat in the story at that point. In time. Yeah. Yeah. What do you, what do you like doing? Cause you've done so many different things from layout to storyboarding, to art direction, to production design, to directing. What, 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 what's the area that you really sort of, you know, get your juices flowing and you really enjoy? I, I seem to like to transition from from one thing to another and have different phases in my career. That's that's what I've been doing, and I like it. I like actually. I want to make the whole movie myself, but it's impossible. With animation, <laughs> it's always a team effort. So yeah. if I can't make the movie, the, if I can't make every single movie all by myself, then I want to touch every aspect of it at some time in my career. So I think that's, that's what I'm trying to so, do. So this goes back to when you were eight years old and trying to make your own Mickey Mouse cartoon all by yourself. Eighth grade. Yeah. Eighth grade. <laughs> I'm yeah. Like eight years old. It wasn't okay. All right. But uh, yeah, that's right. 
Yeah. That, that's funny how, how things come full circle like that. Um, when you worked at Disney, uh, you, you did, you, like you said, the tail end of the great mouse detective, but then you went on to, uh, the little mermaid after that, or did you was Oliver and company, Oliver and company. That's right. Yeah. Eisner came in and then yeah. wanted to update everything. So we had this really contemporary story of Oliver in New York city where he was from Yeah, you know, things that he could relate to. And that's what, uh, fashioned Oliver and company, which had a very different uh, feeling and look than previous Disney movies. And, and you were doing layout on Oliver and company as well, right? That's right. Yeah. I remember they had, uh, uh, they had written Georgette as if she was the Georgette was the fancy show dog poodle in the story. Right. And written her as if she slept in a, in a, like a wicker basket by the furniture. <laughs> and I thought, no, she, uh, She's a show dog. She has to have like her own space and it's gotta be a show palace. And so I did this drawing of uh, like a Busby Berkeley circular staircase going up to her bed. And uh, Roger Allers saw that and, and he took off with it. And uh, uh, so I think he storyboarded that section, but it was <laughs> it's on that drawing that I did of a Busby Berkeley staircase bed for Georgette. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> Uh, what, what do you remember most about Oliver and company? Um, just the, the newness of working with this great group of artists at the studio that I always dreamed of working at. And there was like professional illustrator guy deal was the production designer. on. Yeah. Yeah. And he would have lunch with, uh, some very well-known, uh, illustrators from New York, like famous illustrators. And then he would invite the layout crew to come on those lunches. And that was awesome. Uh, it was always fun when there were uh, special guests like that, that came to the studio. Yeah. Uh, very enjoyable. Yeah. Every once uh, in a while you'd see some famous person come through and Katzenberg's showing, um, I don't know, uh, 60 minutes crew through the studio and things. Yeah. All, all those things were kind of very exciting. Yeah. I, I, I remember they had Doug Henning come in. I don't know if you were at the studio when Doug Hen yeah. Doug Henning, the, the, the big Las Vegas magician at that time, uh, he and his wife came to the studio and did a, did a talk on, on magic and wow. uh, that kind of stuff. It was, it was actually kind of fascinating. Uh, but yeah, it, it, there was, you, you never knew who you were going to see in, in the hallways right uh at the studio from oliver and company though you did go on to little mermaid i did yeah Yeah. and uh and how was the experience working on little mermaid Uh, when i was working on little mermaid mermaid i i felt like i was working on a classic disney movie i felt like i was working in the in the heyday that i had dreamed about like the golden age uh, the 30s 40s 50s era yeah and and you were doing layout. I was doing layout, yeah. And, and what, what what are some of the memories of working on the Little Mermaid? Um, I was, I think I did a lot of the Ursula, uh, Ursula in her lair. I did the opening credits area where where this fish is. Uh, I guess this fish had just jumped off of the boat and he was going down through the coral and through the anemones and things, and so. Um, I don't know. I just enjoyed working with the crew. There was a- yeah, it was it was a good. That was a good. That was really a good crew of people. We were over in the uh, the fourteen twenty uh, building in Glendale. 
That's right. They had yeah. this great cafeteria. I still miss the cafeteria across the street at Imagineering. Yeah, the Imagineering cafeteria, which which was uh, uh, very welcoming to all of us, which I, I, I have to say was a nice nice thing when we moved over to that building. I have they to- also folded in the, stu- the studio library, reference library, in with the Walt Disney Imagineering library. Yeah. We had access to all that material. Yeah. Which was amazing, and, and you know something. I just to touch on that. Uh, going back, if you if you're a real student of the uh, of the Disney Studios, you you can go back to the 30s, and uh, you'll you'll see references to uh, a studio library. Uh, they were they were constantly uh, uh, buying periodicals and books and reference material, uh, and and that just grew and grew over the years, uh, and and it's pretty sizable um, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Al John, you were going to say something. Oh, I was going to ask Fred too because every one of our guests seem to have a really have a penchant for donuts. I don't know what it is. But maybe did you partake in in the the donut action, Fred? There, as we talk about catering and, and working in the studio, I don't. I'm sure I had them. <laughs> right now, I don't eat donuts that often. Because- sure. I know they don't sit well. In my yeah. Stomach. Well, you know, because the food fights, the it seemed to me like there was a bunch of food fights that have happened over the years that surrounded donuts. And I didn't know if maybe you were involved in those shenanigans, but, you know, I just had to bring that up. Well, I don't recall food fights. That might have been something that happened later. Okay. But but I I will say though Al John to your point uh, I do I do remember people coming in every it wasn't every day and it wasn't every week but it was periodically somebody would come in with a big box of Krispy Kreme donuts you know fresh fresh out you know fresh hot donuts you know glazed donuts and um, and certainly a lot of people partook in that yeah yeah, yeah. I do remember the dinners that they would bring in when we were working late. And they always had to kind of police it because some people would just stay long enough to eat the dinner and then and, and, and then, then go home. home. <laughs> <laughs> if it's free, it's I remember, me. Yeah. I remember that quite well, Fred. You know, because I was a morning person, so I would I was one of those people that would hang around like, oh, you're ordering dinner, sure, get me this, you know. And then when when it was delivered, I'm like, mm, okay, eat my dinner. Okay, see you guys tomorrow. <laughs> Peace out. <laughs> 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 oh, such great stuff. Um, let me ask you, uh, you worked in, obviously, in layout on those pictures, but uh, w- when did you sort of take that turn off the road of doing layout into uh, production design or art direction? I'm not sure which one you did first. After, uh, at the end of Little Mermaid, my friend Steve Moore, who I had a really good relationship with from CalArts, he was uh, placed as the director on a film called Rover Dangerfield, which was oh, Rodney yeah. Dangerfield, Dangerfield as a dog. I remember that. I may have even done some freelance work Harold. on that project. Uh, yeah. That was uh, written by Harold Ramis. And uh, um, so it was a fairly high profile thing. And yeah. I said to Steve, when he said, it's like, Hey, I've just been made director on this. I said, Hey, well, if you need an art director, <laughs> call me up. And uh, he said, hey, well, if you're asking to be an art director, you must be ready. So sure. That's awesome. Did you feel like you were ready to, to jump to art direction? 
I think so. I had been doing, doing color things. I had uh, been doing color keys on uh, Sport Goofy Soccer Mania. They said if I wanted, um, I think Don Hahn told me, if you want to just do color, then you have to do it on a freelance basis. But if you want to be in-house, then we'll hire you as layout. And then you'll also be doing the color keys. <laughs> Well, and, and isn't, isn't that, isn't that true though, Fred? I mean, oftentimes you're doing a job before you actually get the title, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, that's always been my experience in, in the business. You know, if you wanted to become an animator and you were an assistant, you did a lot of animation and then you eventually got bumped to uh, be an animator, a full-fledged animator. Right. Uh, and, and I think that was true with a lot of people. You, you just had to have the, um, uh, you had to have the drive to go after it and be willing to do it before you got the title. Right. And then I got, uh, as an art director or production designer, I got ANSI to do storyboards. And so every once in a while, there'd be some section that was like effects heavy and you'd, you'd want to board that as the uh, production designer because it was so art heavy. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, so I got my feet with, wet with some things like that. And then I can't remember on Jimmy Neutron, I was production designer, uh, but then there was this several pages and they didn't have enough storyboard crew to storyboard uh, it. So I had done some little personal storyboard things uh, to pitch some TV shows or something like that. And the director saw those and he said, Hey, would you uh, storyboard these three pages of the script or whatever? And uh, I said, sure. So that's, uh, I think that was my first uh, uh, storyboarding. No, no, I did. Uh, that was my first storyboarding of actual script pages, I think. Yeah, you know, I, I always tell people, you know, when somebody asks you if you want to do something, you should always just say yes, you know. It's like, you know, in a work environment, if, if it's out of your wheelhouse and somebody says, hey, you want to try this, you should always do it because I that's how you get the experience. Good advice. You know? yeah. right? Even if it's something you think is maybe beneath you, if, it, if it's different than what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, get the experience. It's good. Yeah, that's what I think. That's what I think. What, what's the big difference for you when you're doing uh, a, a TV show as opposed to a feature? I know the answer to this, but I want the, I want you to tell the audience. The plus side of working on a TV show is like almost everything you do gets to the screen <laughs> because they can't afford to redo things over and over again. Right. That's the, that's the plus of working on features is they have more, more time and more money and more of a desire to perfect things before they go into production. Yeah. So you work on higher quality stuff on a feature, but the, uh, sometimes there's a lot of pain of doing a lot of hard work only to have that trashed in favor of some new idea that comes out of who knows Right. And, and you're working on the project for two or three years, as opposed to how, how quick are you doing TV, a TV show? And you know, you're doing an episode a week or something? There's a, no, there's a, usually a six week schedule for if you're boarding on a TV show for an 11 minute uh, portion of an episode. Uh, there's always like two different stories or two yeah. or something like that for a half hour airtime. Um, if you have an 11 minute section, you're storyboarding on that for six weeks. I think. 
And, and do you th- feel like that's a, f- a sufficient amount of time? Just barely. Is it? Not, not with it. If you're going to be a, just a strict nine to five person, no. Okay. Uh, so it's, uh, I don't know. I don't want to say that it's typical for people to put in extra time on a TV show, but I tend to do that because I want to see it be a certain thing. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't make the schedule, so the schedule doesn't accommodate yeah. what I want to accomplish. Yeah. And, and a lot of that animation is actually going overseas to be done, right? And and, I, and as far as I'm concerned, it's sort of garbage in, garbage out. If if you don't do enough, you don't you don't get a great show back. But if you if you put the effort in and, and really do the extra. Uh, you get a good show coming back to you, right? And I'm aware of that. And because I've done production design, I tend to put things into my board that gives some art direction as well as regular storyboard. So you're giving the extra notes and doing... Because it's going to become the direction that they go when it gets over there. Right, right. And where, where, where are most of your shows being done? Is it just uh, sort of a... A lot of stuff in India now. Oh, so there is a lot going over to India, huh? Yeah. There's not so much in Asia anymore, although when it when things do go to Asia, they I I I've seen that they're typically going to Korea. Yeah. Um for a while they were going a lot was going to China, but uh, China's closed up a little bit for for us as Americans, I think. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Tokyo got too expensive. Way too, way way too expensive. Back in the 80s, everything was going to Tokyo. Right. It's too expensive. Yeah. And I think Tokyo started farming things out to other countries. Yeah. Um, so uh, Taiwan was one of them. So Taiwan was a popular place. For a while. Yeah. I've been to Taipei a couple of times and, and worked with uh, James Wong. Uh, he sent Bebe's kids to Taiwan. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and there's animation going on in the Philippines and down in Australia. So. Yeah. I've never worked on a show that went to the Philippines. I think. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> I know so I shouldn't say that. <laughs> Sorry, Al John. I know you're part Filipino. Oh no, I have no problem. <laughs> I have no problem with that. CG projects, there's a lot of tel- CG television shows going to India and they're good. Yeah, well they they have the infrastructure over there. Mm-hmm. But also yeah. there's there's uh, cultural similarities, so things yeah. tend to uh not get misinterpreted as much as when like they go to Asia, there's yeah. a language barrier and a cultural difference that, that makes animators make different choices than an American animator would make. Uh, in India, it's a, a, there's something a little more similar with their culture over there. And they, they tend to make some of the same acting decisions and things that we would make as Americans. Yeah, that's a really interesting observation. I mean, obviously India was part of the British Empire. Uh, so I wonder if that that sort of Western influence early on in the country has carried carried forward, uh, which is which is very different than uh, if you go to Shanghai or uh, some, some of the other locations in Asia. That's it, I don't know. Yeah. Wow. That, that's, uh, that, that is insightful, Fred. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> what are you working on now, Fred? Right now I'm working on a new show. So nobody's seen it yet. It's called Lego Titans. And it's kind of, uh, uh, it has some similarities as far as the story material goes with stranger things. There's two different worlds. There's a yeah. dream world, a real world. And 
that's probably all I should say about it. Like I probably, I don't know if I should even have said that. Yeah. You're blowing the <laughs> lid off of you, everybody. We're getting an exclusive here it's from It's a scoop, y'all. It's a scoop. <laughs> well, we don't want to get you in trouble, Fred. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to press you any further on that, but that sounds very interesting. Yeah, but I, it's an ambitious show and I'm loving it and it's, it's hard work and I love it. Have you done any teaching at all over the years? Yeah, I taught for seven or eight years at uh, um, Ch Chapman University, and that's with Bill Croyer's program, Digital Arts program. Yeah, Bill's retired now, though, right? Hasn't he? Just retired about, I don't know, six months ago or a year ago. Wow, who's taking over the program? I don't know who that is, but Bill and Sue moved to Wisconsin. Wow. He bought a beautiful house there, and... I think a lot of Sue's uh, relatives are back there. So that's where they are. Wow. That's pretty, that's a major move, isn't it? Yeah. But I would teach on Monday nights. I teach one course in the fall and then a different course in the spring. And I did that for about eight years. And wow. You were commuting down there? Yeah. It was a tough commute at that time of day because I'd only teach the evening course. So Oof. I'd have to leave work early on Monday nights to make it down there in time for Oh, after a day of work, it was like a three-hour evening course. Yeah. yeah, it was draining. Yeah. Wow. Wow. What 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 kind of advice would you give to uh, some of the up-and-coming artists that are looking to get into the industry? Because I I I always like to ask uh, colleagues this question because I think there's way more opportunities in the industry today than there were when we first got in. Yeah, I think uh, being familiar enough with how the industry works to know exactly what you want and then to ask for that, uh, to, to head for that. Don't be the, I, I don't think it's a good idea to be the person who comes in the door saying, I'll do anything and I'll work for free. Right. Um, you should have a very specific goal. And even if you're uh, doing some sort of a simple entry level position. If you want to be director, start putting together little short projects of your own on your free time and let people see that you're doing that. So they see you as that position that you're going for. They'll, they'll see you as a director before you become a director. Right. Right. And, that, and that's really always, I, I mean, it goes back to act as if, you know, if you want to be a director, act as if you're a director. But you got to make sure you're actually doing it. Uh, there was yeah. a person that used to say that he wanted to be a writer, but nobody ever saw anything that he wrote. Yeah. And he never spent any time writing. Yeah. And so nobody, nobody ever took him seriously when he talked about wanting to be a writer. You've got to actually put the pedal to the metal. You've actually got to. Well, we all know that this town is filled with people who are writers. Uh, you can go into prior prior to uh, the pandemic, you could go into any restaurant, and uh, the person serving you was either uh, an aspiring actor, actress, or writer. Well, the chances are that the server was actually a working actor, <laughs> just yeah. wasn't working that much. Exactly. Exactly. But I, I do think, though, that if you if you do want to go for a particular position, you really have to show that you can do it before you actually get it. You, you have to be doing the work, you know, and that, and, that, and that's, you know, something that a lot of people don't realize um, 
out in the work world, uh, you know, you really have to uh, work hard uh, to, to move up and to get those positions because they're, because they're few and far between. Yeah. And saying yes is good too. I remembered, uh, back in the eighties, late eighties, uh, Disney was just getting into computer graphics. Yeah. You did a test thing and you had to work for free on it in the evenings. It was oil spot and lipstick. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I said, yes, I'll work on that. <laughs> I'll work for free. Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't uh, exactly like telling everybody you're working for free. It was just to test out this new hardware and software. that. They yeah. Had. Well, you know what? That, that was kind of an after hours project that a group of people put together. And if you wanted to participate, they were happy to have you. And if you didn't, that's no big deal, you know? And there was a, there was a tight group of people that did that project, which I thought was fantastic. Right. You know, and, for, for the time. And to, you know, volunteer for that and then stick with it and do a good job. It says something about you to all of the other people. Some of those people will be staffing other projects in the future. So, right. So the fact that you said yes to that project when other people said, I'm not going to do that and stay late and work for free. <laughs> <laughs> what's, your, what's your general view of your career? Uh, when you look back, are, are there things that you wish you hadn't worked on or you wish you did work on, or, you know, are you, are you really pleased with, uh, all the shows that you, you were part of? Well, it's, it's tough to be dissatisfied with a career that's, I don't know, it's been good to you. So yeah. there's stuff that, I don't know, maybe I, I would rather have my name on another project that was being done at the same time, but it doesn't mean that I regret doing the project. Yeah. Did. Um, I, it was just a, another experience to put in my, my uh, box of experiences. You know, I, I always took the view that whatever project I worked on, I, I always, you know, put in 150% and was proud of what I did, like what of the part that I played in that project, even if the project wasn't successful, you know, even if, you know, I, and I often, I, you know, I tell people I have a special place in my heart for the black cauldron, you know, there, there, you know, this was a film that really was not commercially successful for a variety of reasons. But I, I think if you go back and look at it and you look at the individual components, you look at the backgrounds, you look at some of the animation that was being done at that time, you look at the special effects, um, you know, the music score, uh, there's a lot of really good stuff in that movie. And it, and it really was just, it, it didn't hold together as well Story-wise, you know, there were other issues going on at the studio, but I still am darn proud of the fact that I worked on that. And that was my first screen credit in the industry. Right. And there was a lot of young people that worked on that that eventually stepped up into key positions on later films. Yeah. That experience was was necessary for them. It was yeah. No, I, I absolutely agree with you on that. You know, it was, it was, there was a transition on many different levels going on at the studio at that time when that movie was being made. But again, I, I would defy anybody to, to go take a look at it. You could actually watch that film on Disney plus. 
I believe is am I right, Al John? I believe it's on Disney Plus. Yeah, I believe so. Uh, I think when we had we had Joe Hale on the show uh, last year, and uh, and I think I went and and watched the film again because uh, I hadn't seen it in a while. And the funny thing, I have to tell you. When I was at uh, Walt Disney Animation Studios many years ago, I arranged for a screening of The Black Cauldron because not that many of the younger artists that were at the studio at the time had seen the movie. And I got to tell you, it was standing room only. There were people sitting in the aisles uh, when we screened uh, a print of The Black Cauldron. So. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I, I, my, getting back to my original question, I'm, I, I don't necessarily, uh, I, I, I don't have any regrets on the projects I worked on. Uh, I, I tend to take that, you know, view that I was really pleased with the work that I did on the project. But if the overall project wasn't a success, that, that was really on the directors and on audience taste and all of those things. And it might, uh, you might be working on a project that you don't think is that great. And it's not your baby, but it's somebody's baby. It's somebody's dream to make yeah. a project. And you're either going to be a, a, a hurdle that they have to jump over to get their project made, or you're going to help them. And why would you, you want to be helpful. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a Jackson Brown song. It must be somebody's baby. You know, uh, you know, a couple quick, I had to bring that around to music. Um, Fred, you know, I, I, your, your resume is huge. So, but I wanted to touch on just a couple of things. Um, first of all, I, I'm a big fan of the series mask and I grew up, I grew up with that and you worked for Deke back in the day that was known for inspector gadget. Also a big fan of that, but mask, if, if people don't know was, was released in 1985 and, was kind of the, we want to sell toys to people that the kids like me that love Transformers and GI Joe kind of mixture of the two. And so you had the good guys and the bad guys, very GI Joe versus Cobra. It was mask versus venom, but you were involved in the character design. Now, when, when the show was launching um, in the pre-production of the show, did Kenner, the toy company Kenner, come up to you and say, we're doing this series and can you help us design characters for the show? And then the toys would come out or were the toys already uh, in 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 kind of this, this form of concept and then you had to make an animated character design sheet based on the pre-existing okay. work? How did that oh, work? At the risk of crushing your childhood dreams and memories <laughs> on this show. Okay. I have to say that it was created as a line of toys. Okay. And uh, the characters, the toys were already designed when they came to DIC and they just were saying, we need a contract studio to make this, uh, gotcha. this uh, series. And all I did as a character designer, I have a credit on every single show that yeah. they did. But I just did the initial turnarounds for those characters. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then I got a character design credit that went through the entire series. That's awesome. 
That's awesome. <laughs> I yeah. hope you were paid for every episode. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I'm like, sweet. That's not how it works. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> no, you have to. Yeah, that's not how it works. Uh, another, yeah. another, yeah. another story of a content creator being screwed over. Well, <laughs> no, well, that that is interesting. But it was it was a cool little series, and 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 the other series that I'm I'm fascinated by is Robot Chicken because. No, Creative show. Now, uh, <laughs> that show lives on the edge, and I had the pleasure of um, meeting Matthew Seinreich, um, creative uh, behind that, along with Seth Seth Green and Mike Falzolo. Falzolo uh, just an amazing show. We I've seen every episode several times, and I just get a kick out of the just the humor. How is it that you can storyboard these things when it seems like it's so? off the cuff and kind of spontaneous kind of the, how do you, how do you do that? Is it something where you're in the writer's room doing the storyboards or they're bouncing ideas off of you? How does that work? Well, the scripts come to you. They have like a, every, every, well, the script is for the episode is just like, it's written like a regular script and okay. that's what you get as the artist. And, uh, you have to, it's all pop culture references. So you're, you're always going to YouTube to see what, the hell they're talking about in the script um and then uh you just board it out and it's not like you you try to board it just like you board anything and then they do have they give a lot of leeway to the uh the animators um they'll if they kind of like to, if it's easier for them to restage something a certain way then then they'll restage something so, and the turnaround is really quick. I had to work a lot of all-nighters to do those scripts on that show. Oh, I'm sure. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. Are they just, are the creators just as irreverent as you would expect them to be um, being behind the scenes as they are maybe in interviews or in front of the camera, especially for someone like Seth Green? No, I don't. Well, I didn't work in the studio a lot for that show. I, I worked at home. Ah, uh. I don't, I met everybody, but I didn't know what their day-to-day working habits were. Gotcha. They originally had, that student originally had hired me to storyboard on a feature film that they were going to make. It's called Naughty or Nice or something. It was basically Santa's elves and, yeah, yeah. and uh, some kind of uh, secret spy stuff that uh, it was, a, uh, I don't know. It was <laughs> one of those holiday themed. Yeah. Right, right. Spy thriller with the Santa's elves and things. Anyway, um, so I started boarding on that, and then they, uh, the releasing studio decided they didn't want to make it or something like that, and so they said, well, uh, we know you're better than this series we have, but if you'd like, could you uh, storyboard on Robot Chicken? So I said, sure. It's like, that was a time when there wasn't a lot going on in town. So yeah, was, yeah, um, yeah. So I was happy to have the work. And uh, it was fun because it was all sketch comedy. So it's very, very little s- clips. You don't have to be married to something for five years. Yeah. I, I, how do you feel about doing sort of pop culture references uh, as far as, you know, it, it, it seems like, you know, 20 years from now, some of that stuff may fall flat. Right. It's like it's and it's supposed to fall flat. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. It's, yeah. It's just a different mindset. It's like uh um, it's like classical music or pop music. Pop music's going to come and go. Classical music's going to be here all the time. It doesn't necessarily mean that you don't want to be a pop musician. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's true. 
Yeah, yeah. It, it is interesting though because Robot Chicken kind of predates meme culture and and some of that stuff that we that we just laugh at now, especially with the age of the internet. So uh, they're very sharp stuff, and uh, I, I can appreciate the humor. But uh, it is fascinating to see that kind of um, pop culture. Uh, scathing, you know, kind of uh, on the edge kind of humor being brought to life sketch comedy wise with a bunch of toys. So it was just a very interesting uh, bit of animation there. It was fun. I wouldn't want to do it for my whole career, but (laughs) because it has its limitations, but if if you ever get a chance to go see uh, a stop motion uh, studio like that, that that's great. They had great modeling department that would make Mm -hmm. little, uh, maquettes and make the, the sets and things. And they, they just did things like gorilla filmmaking style. They, they filmed everything with these little, uh, digital cameras, like, like you'd give to your daughter as a, (laughs) as a, as a gift for, I don't know. It's like little cheapy little cameras and they just, uh, their, their stop motion photography with those things. Yeah. I do have one last bit. Can you tell us about your involvement with Space Jam? Okay, you saw that I had a character design credit on that movie. I had like three credits on that movie for yeah. some reason. Yeah, yeah. Character design they gave me because up front I did some visual development and they used some stuff that was, uh, it wasn't exactly character designs. It was like uh, the police squad car and, you know, things like that. They were more production design oriented, but that's the kind of, that's the credit that they gave me. I think they gave me a character design and a visual development and a art direction credit. Yeah. Something like that. Oh, gotcha. Because I did a lot of stuff for developmentally. And so in order to, when they were putting the credits together, they decided to give me those credits. Wow. Okay. That's cool. Nope. So I didn't work on character design on the classic uh, Warner Brother characters. Gotcha, that. gotcha. But uh, Space Jam, uh, Ron Tip was the producer of the animation on that, wasn't he? That's right. I think it started out with uh, Steve Leva and Jerry Reese, and then they kind of retooled things and um, that Ron, Ron Tip and Allison Abate on. Right, right. And uh, yeah, it was a crazy project because they used like every studio in the world to get it done. They wanted to get it done. It was a pop culture um, property. So they needed to get it done quickly. Right. And so they had farmed everything out all over the world for that. Um, So it was a coordinate coordination nightmare for whoever was in charge of production. Were you you surprised that they did a second one with uh, recently? Yeah, because, well, I'm not too surprised because they redo everything. But um, <laughs> the fact that it was so tied to the popularity popularity of the Nike Michael Jordan television ads. Yeah. That's what inspired the whole project. Yeah. And so they didn't have those ads, but it was the, the popularity of the original film that caused them to want it. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, Fred, uh, we're bumping up uh, to an hour. Uh, I was going to say, any parting words uh, for our audience? I enjoyed our time together here, and I hope everyone gets something out of it. (laughs) 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 Listen to it. 
Well, Fred, I have to say it, it's absolutely, it was a pleasure spending uh, the show with you, spe- spending an hour with you talking about uh, your career, uh, which is varied and incredible. And uh, it's great to see that you're doing so well. And uh, and I, I can't even remember the last time you and I actually stood in the same room and talked. It's got to be 10 years ago. I have no idea unless we saw we saw each other in an industry functions. Yeah, yeah, we may have run into each other someplace, but boy, it's it's been a while. So it's really great seeing you, and I appreciate you being on the Skull Rock Podcast. Thanks for having me on. It was fun. Your attention, please. <laughs> now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. Wow, Dave, another great interview with Fred. And uh, I love the, the the Mary Blair drops in there. Oh, my gosh. You know, really terrific stories. I mean, talk about how lucky could you be uh, to meet uh, some Disney legends like Lee and Mary Blair. Holy mackerel, you know, and, and, and early, like, you know, he was in high school when he met them and, and became friends with them. That It was just really terrific to hear those stories. Um, I think being... Being mentored in that way is just the best thing that could ever, ever happen. I, I feel mentorship is something that doesn't get talked about a lot. And it's something I definitely love to do whenever new people come in or I see, I see people, I always take an opportunity to, to kind of usher them through and wel- be welcoming and, and welcome them into the fold, whether it be work or, you know, some other, uh, you know, adventure or whatever, volunteerism or whatever we're doing. Mentorship, I think is so important. So, yeah, it really is. All right. Dave, we've got a tremendous amount of guests coming up. I, it's hard to believe that now we're rounding the corner, um, going past a year of our podcast being in existence, and we have so many more great stories and interviews coming up. We really do. Uh, we've got a, a Imagineer Tom Morris coming up, and of course, uh, you're going to be a witness to Al John and Dave's Halloween show. Uh, so uh, we're putting that together uh, for later this month. Yeah, I can't wait. I don't even know what we're going to do, but we're going to do something fun. (laughs) We're going to do something special off the cuff. It's going to be hilarious. And we hope you join us for all the shenanigans here on Skull Rock Podcast. Once again, if you love Disney and pop culture, like I know you do, because you you, uh, are here to the very end, uh, please subscribe to our show on any one of your favorite podcast platforms. We're on it. As Dave said earlier, we're on Audible. We're on Spotify, Apple google iHeartRadio, sorcerer radio you name it we're on it and then you can also follow us on all the social media platforms as well facebook twitter instagram we've added a couple new features on our spotify feed so if you check out the spotify feed not only can you uh, subscribe to the show listen to the show archives you can leave us voicemail messages like some of our listeners have done in the past and you can also answer some of our poll questions i think we'll have some poll questions and if guests that are popping up if you have any questions you can actually uh answer or ask your question right there on spotify and we will get to it on an upcoming podcast so a lot of really cool features if you use spotify for skull rock podcast you can also drop us those emails as well dave at skullrockpodcast.com and aljohn at skullrockpodcast.com dave you'll see us out that's right al john and as always peace and love to all 
everyone out there, go out, have a fantastic week. Uh, be well, be safe, and we'll look forward to having you back here at the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List Podcast, as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast, here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money. Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, Adventures by Disney? They can contact me at themeparksandcruises at gmail.com. I'm Kristen Hetzel, vacation planner, world traveler, Disney foodie, and theme park fan. I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host a Disney List podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. You can even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook. The Disney List Podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com.